Welcome to People of Purpose, a podcast series of interviews with people doing meaningful work and living with heart. The series is hosted by Joanna Scott, and guests come from nearly every field you can imagine. People of Purpose sits under the website Magdo Co. For more content, visit wearemagdo.com.au. Tom Dawkins recognised that doing good in the world came at a price. Without a huge amount of funds, it's difficult to become a registered and recognised non-profit or charity. For the thousands of small and as yet unproven social good projects, this is an issue. So he created Start Some Good, a crowdfunding platform for non-profits, social entrepreneurs and change makers who want to raise funds to kick their project off the ground. Tom previously founded award-winning non-profit Vibewire and was part of the team to launch the Australian Changemakers Festival. He also opened Australia's first co-working space and set up a Burning Man theme camp with his wife, Kate. The pair live in Sydney with their family. Tom, welcome to People of Purpose. Thanks for having me. So we're sitting here in your beautiful yoga room. It's got wooden floors and I can see the ocean when I peek out the window. And I'm getting a sense that you're someone who really integrates your life and your work. What are some habits that are important for you to integrate into your daily living? I mean, the thing that helps me integrate the most is probably just the fact that I work from home. Uh, Start Some Goods a virtual team, so our team's spread out um, around the world and with the exception of a couple of interns, I'm the only one in Sydney. Um, so I used to work at a co-working space in the city, but when my second son, Yagen, was born last year, it just felt so much easier um, to, to just be here um, and, you know, kind of cut out all that lost time going from one place to the other mm-hmm. and enable me to be kind of a lot more present and involved uh, in the family um, than, than perhaps people working on a startup would, would sometimes find themselves being. And I, sure. I really value that. Um, so that's the, that's the main one is just co-locating. I mean, beyond that, in terms of certain habits, you know, there's, yeah, there's a schedule we have. My, my wife's a yoga teacher, so she's out sometimes. Oh, and I'm nice. <laughs> doing breakfast with the boys or putting them both to, both to bed. Um, and yeah, it's, it's great. I love all of that. And how do you find working from home? Because I work from home sometimes as well. I also work from a co-working mm. space. And people often say to me, how can you be productive? You know, I wouldn't be productive at home. Do you find that's an issue for you? Not really. I mean, I have a, you know, a, a nice dedicated office so there's a space I can go and close the door and it's entirely a workspace for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is that physical separation within the house, even though I'm still here. I used to find co-working spaces quite distracting, to be honest, because I'm, right. I'm quite a, a social person. I love chatting with people mm. and I'm, you know, I'm easily drawn into that <laughs> yeah, I am when, too. when that's on offer. Um, so I found myself uh, at, at co-working spaces in the past, which I love. I actually set up the first co-working space in Sydney uh, a long time ago. And so I'm a real believer in co-working spaces and mm. I, I love everything about them really. But but I have to be pretty disciplined when I'm there because if I'm not careful, I you know find out about six awesome new projects that people are doing <laughs> and have a big picture chat about you know urban planning issues in Sydney. Yep. Or, <laughs> but uh, get to the end of the day and haven't got enough done. Sure. Okay. Well, let's jump to start some good. Mm-hmm. Why did you create this platform for peer funding? Because, uh, you know, I thought it was neat. I, I thought it was needed, I, particularly when we started. I mean, these days, we certainly have a number of competitors and it's quite a crowded space. But when we first kicked off in 2011, no one was really trying to apply a, you know, what you might describe as a Kickstarter model, mm-hmm. uh, which is project focused, you know, um, with 
with meaningful deadlines, so in some sort of an all or nothing mm-hmm. function, which is really the, 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 the single piece of innovation in crowdfunding. Like the idea that you can ask lots of people for money online is not brand new. You know, that's yeah, been going on yeah. for, for 25 years. I mean, going back even further, the idea that you can aggregate small contributions from lots of people in order to fund a project that no one individual could, could fund has, is as old as tithing. That's hundreds mm-hmm. of years old, the practice of kind of community fundraising. So in terms of what's really new about crowdfunding, it's actually that all or nothing mechanism that makes it more game-like and that makes it more urgent. Mm. And, and urgency works in fundraising. But no one was providing that mechanism to social change projects. And part of what drew me to that is that, you know, for a long time, really, I mean, my whole life, I've been really um, focused on how you build platforms and opportunities for more people to get involved and create in making a difference. And so one of the real blockages traditionally within, you know, within, I guess, the so what you might broadly call the social change space is, of course, the challenge of getting early stage funding. Mm-hmm. And that was all kind of, you know, that was controlled by a small number of gatekeepers. And you could only even kind of, kind of get in the game if you had a certain type of legal structure, right? Um, which is a tax-deductible non-profit, which was completely non-tri- non-trivial to achieve, can, can cost hundreds of dollars, can take years, can never happen. Um, and all of this leaves an o- enormous amount of innovation on the side. It means that we can't react quickly enough and that if you're a, you know, kind of a young go-getter, it's a ridiculous amount of hoops to jump through before you can even begin to try to raise funds. Mm. And the fact of the matter is that for a lot of people, they're not going to raise funds anyway if their idea is not quite ready. So why even jump through those hoops? Yeah. So we were really inspired by the idea that you could just find, you could you could provide a, a platform that enabled people to go around those gatekeepers and instead raise money directly from their community and from the people who cared most about the work they were doing. What is the um, the requirements for someone to fundraise on Start Some Good? Uh, that they'd be trying to make a positive impact on the world. Cool. And that's up to them to decide if it's positive? No, I mean, ultimately <laughs> we have to decide. Okay, um, you so know, you vet so, the, yeah, the projects. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, obviously we don't take, you know, we, we come from a broadly pro- progressive um, perspective politically, but, you know, I'm a humanist, I guess you could almost call, uh, where we sit. So, you know, if your version of a better future is to, I don't know, rapidly advocate against immigration, we wouldn't take that. Right. That's, you know, we, we don't take anything that vilifies other groups of people or that or that creates, you know, division. Sure. Um, so we're looking for things that are, you know, much more positive in trying to build communities, in trying to support vulnerable people, in trying to create new ways of creating change. And that includes, you know, we're very passionate supporters of social enterprises, you know, which is a group that have been excluded traditionally from, from yeah. traditional fundraising platforms. We are a social enterprise ourselves and we love supporting mission-driven for-profit companies because we think that's going to be a really important part of how we're creating future uh, how we're creating change in the future so it's like getting rid of those barriers so people can just get on and do the work that they're really passionate about that will make a positive change yeah and look there's nothing wrong you know tax deductibility is awesome i just don't think it's a good step one for most you know if you're it seems a bit premature yeah it's like you're setting up this podcast let's say you know should you is step one for you to kind of you know, f- get this this right uh, legal structure, this perfect legal structure, and then to fill out your forms to try and make it tax deductible as an edu- Let's say we get, it's an education organisation, you can try and get it listed as tax deductibility takes a minimum of six months to turn around, often years, mm. and sometimes never. Some organisations only achieve their tax deductibility through a unique act of parliament. There's right. no tax deductible cha- category for making um, for helping people get involved in politics. Um, right. 
and so you know the the nonprofit that I founded at University Vibewire is is not tax deductible. It's fourteen years old now, but it's never been able to achieve tax deductible status. So there's right. all sorts of kind of barriers and kind of inequalities within the within tax deductibility. But even if it's where you want to go, I think you need to test your idea first. Just as for you, the the, the right first step is actually to make some podcasts, put them out there, and find out how people are actually uh, interacting with the content. Sure. And what you need to do differently. I think the right approach with a with a social change idea is is to try and test and validate it in some way um now obviously there's ways to validate it in the real world that are not just running a, a fundraising campaign but one way you can validate it is to find out do people care enough to to, to put their money in mm. um and i think is what you know crowdfunding allows you to kind of validate and test that with or without a tax acceptable structure as, as early as you're ready that's cool and i was reading yesterday some of the history of start some good and I was reading about some challenges that you had in the early stages. You'd been planning and working on this for a long time. And then I think it was a week before... Two days. Two days. So tell us about what happened. Um, essentially, a very similar website to us launched at the exact same time as us. But, just, but, you know, two days before we did. Using literally the same line that we were planning to use. You know, we were... I was based in San Francisco at the time. And so, you know, we were planning to try and hit up all the startup press and so on and... Startup Press love a very simple, we are the X for Y. Mm-hmm. So, so we were the, the Kickstarter for social change. Kickstarter were, were hot at the time. It was a really simple way to describe that. And then two days before we planned to send that press release out and so on, someone else, all, all these stories suddenly hit of the Kickstarter for social change. And in fact, it was a site called 33 Needs that you know ironically only stuck around for about nine months and mm. then went out of business. Um, but but com- completely pulled the rug out from under us in terms of our kind of we didn't get any PR or any media because they just published that story yeah so and I find this really interesting because they didn't survive and you guys are going strong many years later when do you push through challenges like that like you could have seen that as a oh wow someone else has done it where it's not meant to be or you know this is just a setback let's keep going let's keep pushing forward we kind of had to just push forward at that point because we had all these projects who were launching with us you know Mm -hmm. so we who, who had chosen one of the big I guess, you know, challenges up front was convincing people to fundraise on a platform that didn't exist because mm-hmm. we couldn't launch without those campaigns on it. You know, there's a crowdfunding campaign is empty without mm-hmm. crowdfunding, sorry, a crowdfunding platform is empty without crowdfunding campaigns. So we thought we needed 10, you know, just to kind of fill up the homepage and give something to look at. Um, and that took, that took quite a few months of just trying to like line people up and get them all ready to launch at the same time, you know, kind of like, like like uh, linking all their, stra- all, all their planning and strategy up and so on. So like, at that point, we were completely committed to those 10 projects that they... Which is probably a good thing. It's yeah, not, exactly. It's not about the press, it's about the projects. Yeah, exactly. So we, it was all about helping them launch and succeed. And, you know, ultimately what we've learned as well is that, I mean, press would have been nice and it couldn't possibly have hurt. But I mm. think in general, I see people who are really press-focused uh, who are crowdfunding fail quite a lot and people who are very community focused are much more likely to succeed mm. because to be honest it's it's kind of like I mean even if you get some press you know the media picks you up you're very excited but that's that's not that's not necessarily you know a, a, a real donation or even a real link to potential donors for your campaign yeah. and you have to be very tightly targeted with the kind of people you're communicating to who might support your project and a lot of people run out there wanting press for press's sake yeah you know because any attention is validating um, but like I remember one which was the launch of a, a kind of fashion social enterprise in in Melbourne called One Night Stand, and they did a great job. But they had a very press focused strategy, which involved the founder standing in a in a kind of um, perspex box for twenty four hours in the Grays Lane, 
and so they got picked up by the morning programs you know like yeah like the morning shows. sunrise or whatever yeah. but that wasn't their actual market mm, you know they were so kind of like hipster social changey youth you know it's kind of this edgy brand one night stand it's it's the kind of people who are watching TV at 7am in the morning are probably not the kind of people who are going to be buying their, their clothes. Yeah. They were meant to be on the Project TV, which would have been a great fit for their audience. But then, you know, real news happened. I figured yeah. what happened. They got bumped. Right. And it was a 24-hour stunt and so that opportunity was gone. Anyway, they're getting, getting ahead of myself. In, in terms of our... our I, I guess we began to see that already, though, when our attempt to get PR completely failed. But we saw, you know, at least half of those first 10 projects just get on with it. And rally their community around them, and we realised that the people that were supporting them were people who, you know, had a, you know had a connection, and it was peer networks that mm-hmm. you know were social networks that were driving donors, not top line PR. And you're pretty clear on your view of aligning impact with money, and you spoke earlier about you're very pro social enterprise. How has that value defined the kind of work that you've done prior to start some good? I'm not sure I did define the work I did prior to start some good. Um, I mean, I founded three non-profits previously uh, and, and a previous company, but none of them were very focused on money, to be honest. Like okay. The company put on dance parties and was never... <laughs> we, we, lo- we lost more money than we made, but really enjoyed doing it for a few years there and were very passionate about the culture and the, the music and so on. So, so, very va- so very valuable in other ways. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Some of them, you know, create, create culture. But, uh, so I haven't traditionally been very money-focused. I'm very, very impact-focused. But I think that what really drew me to social enterprise as a model is that when when the business model is designed right, the way you make your money is the way you make your impact. So there's no trade-off whatsoever between those things. You simply have the ability to make a greater impact mm-hmm. by being able to scale something that is sustainable and can pay for itself. And with that, you know, I said, kind of when we, when we launched Start Some Good, my whole mindset at the time was how do you go around gatekeepers? I thought crowdfunding is a way around gatekeepers. Mm. I think social enterprise is a way around gatekeepers because potentially it doesn't, because whereas a nonprofit requires constant injections of capital from people who have capital, uh, a social enterprise simply requires a, a, a business model that works and therefore people are buying something that is providing value to them. They're not necessarily donating. Like you have to have a lot of money to be able to just give significant Keep chunks of money donating, away. Yeah. But all of us buy things. Yeah. So it does mean that you can kind of, you, you can rely on this section of the market who are not necessarily wealthy but who value the thing that you do mm. and who need the thing that you do. And if that is in true alignment with your social mission and your social impact, well, then you don't even need to really kind of think about or worry about that too much. You can just be good at that thing and provide that value and, you know, hopefully that will drive your growth which allows you to do more of that thing. Yeah. And for the person buying it, it, it fulfills that need of... Like I have to buy this product for my household, but I don't want to buy anything that's going to be damaging to the planet or, or whatever the whatever the category is. So exactly. it's really like a win-win. Totally, and I think that's kind of where we're at with social enterprise in a way. Like social enterprise 1.0 was the idea that you kind of had to sacrifice to do better for the planet. Right. That you would pay yeah. often, you would have to pay more for the more ethical pro- product, or, or it would be less convenient, or the clothes wouldn't be quite as cool mm. or on trend, or whatever <laughs> yeah. the case might be. Um, Whereas social enterprise 2.0 is now to, you know, to be as good at all that other stuff as a mainstream company, yeah. but then also better for the world and the, and the community. And I think that when you can drag yourself into a position of you know, equal value, but then better, you obviously have, a, have an opportunity to do really well in the market. Yeah. There's only about, I mean, everyone will say that they want to buy products that provide the right 
you know, that are good for the planet and the environment. But all the research shows only about 15% of people will pay more for it. Right. Um, so if we want to really make the biggest difference and really reorient our economy, um, you know, in ways that are more sustainable, less wasteful, so on, we're going to have to provide equivalent value yeah. or else we're not going to be able to get the other 85%. But that's why I think when we do, when a social enterprise can pull itself into that position, of, you know, like a Warby Parker, say, in, in yeah. classes, they're as cool and fashionable, they're better value, actually, mm-hmm. the most, and they're like good for the world. I mean, that's an irresistible offer yeah. for most people. So I'm actually really, bl- I, I think 20 years from now, I almost think social enterprises will be so successful that the phrase itself will lose all meaning because right. there won't be non-social enterprises. Yeah, that's that you simply won't great. be allowed. You know, you, you won't survive if you're not. You won't survive if you're wrecking the planet. You know, yeah. it'll be like like thinking about your impact on future generations and the planet will just be, you know, the the, the ticket to do business mm. at all. Um, so I think over the next twenty years, social enterprises will begin to dominate various categories, and then I think their dominance will be such that the concept itself will disappear from view because it will become embedded within a kind of a, a new form of capitalism essentially mm, that's so exciting i was actually thinking about that yesterday um, about the idea that if you're buying products that align with your values it's actually not like you said it's not you're not giving up anything you're actually in many ways it's a richer way of living and yeah. that's like when you think of behavior and habits like that's a really exciting prospect yeah. And I think, you know, and it, and it means that we can kind of leverage all, all, all parts of us to yeah. make a difference as well. Like, I really think, you know, that there, are, there are kind of social enterprise extremists almost who think like that, you know, who are kind of almost anti-charities. Charities are not real <laughs> right. organizations because they don't work on real kind of, that have real customers and that's the only true form of, you know organizational competence or whatever. And I don't believe any of that. I think there's definitely going to always be a role for not-for-profits. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think it's going to take, you know, it takes, I also don't think you can make the world better just through consumption. No yeah. matter how great the social enterprises are and how ethical we all are, our choices, we also need policy. So we need to, you know, we need to work on government. We also need culture change. So we need to like educate our kids in, yeah. in the right way and, and like build communities in the right way. So I really think it does take all of us. But that, that's one of the things that, you know, I do think that in order to apply in order to like live our values across all the dimensions of our life, including our consumption, we are, yeah. you know, we're not going to stop. Most of us are not going to stop buying things and you know live way deep in the woods and live on solar and collected rainwater. I mean, it might be cool, but it's going to not practical. Then you know, then we do need that area of the economy to kind of rise to the challenge of figuring out how to provide, yeah, what we need at a good value in a way that is beneficial or at minimum not. Not, not damaging. detrimental, yeah, yeah. To, the, to the planet. I think you're right. It's um, consuming things alone is not the answer because we want to lessen our how much we consume, but it's it's part of the puzzle. I think that like your idea of using all of us to create social change is really awesome. Yeah, I mean, you see this all the time. You know, I mean, no amount of conscious consumption will end racism. Mm. But no amount of laws will end racism either. Only people yeah. can, you know, we just have to kind of be less racist. And that's, a, you know, <laughs> that's, that's cultural. And that's how we, you know, that, that I have to, you know, I mean, I'm a parent now. So I think a lot about in those terms as well about, you know, kind of probably one of the most profound things you do for social change is the way you raise kids yeah. and the values you give them. Um, so, you know, I, I think it, you know, it takes our consumption, but it also takes our voting and it takes our activism and it takes our parenting and community building and, and how we interact with other people exactly, and yeah. self-awareness yeah yeah being the change like yeah said. yeah so you mentioned that you came back from the u.s to launch start some good 
actually launched it while living in the US. Oh, okay. Came back to have uh, our first child, Bodhi, in 2012. Okay. And so was that, was that a personal reason to come back or was it, did it make sense for Start Some Good to, to launch it from here or to, sorry, run it from here? Yeah, I mean, no, it was mostly, I mean, look, it, it all became really kind of a bit crazy with visas and stuff living in the US, to be honest. Right. Like, I've I experienced so, that as well, yeah. So I was, you know, I was on a sponsored working visa, which required that I work full time for my sponsor. During a tiny gap in, not even one gap, actually, kind of, I'd, I'd somehow set start some good up on the side, because I'm a bit of a kind of compulsive starter upper of things. <laughs> and so about, I don't know, six months after Start Some Good had launched publicly, um, I was finding the balance really, really hard. I was commuting down to Silicon Valley for my job and kind of running the company on the train and like stepping out of the office and doing all these phone calls and I think and they knew something was up and mm. my heart wasn't, you know, I was really distracted from my job. So decided to, to leave my job in the hope to give myself six months to focus on Start Some Good in San Francisco. I wouldn't have been able to do it as a, a you know, as paid employment, that's fine. We couldn't afford to pay me anyway. Um, and so I was just kind of going to stick around under the radar kind of on a tourist visa. You're allowed to do stuff on a tourist visa. You just can't be paid for it. So okay. it's going to be legal and just focus on start some good. Cool. I thought if I don't give myself that time to really focus on that here in San Francisco, you know, San Francisco feels like a great place to start yeah. a technology focused social enterprise. But I felt like even though I was living in San Francisco, I wasn't experiencing that community at all because I was commuting down to Silicon Valley. Right, like, right. More than an hour, you know, an hour 20 each direction. By the time I got back up from the valley, it was late for most of the kind of meetup group, you know, like kind of the after work drinks yeah, and stuff. Yeah, which is often when things You meet everyone. And yeah, I didn't feel like I knew anyone kind of who were in the kind of social entrepreneurship community. Um, and I really, you know, I really wanted to have that experience. So left my job. Now when, you know, leaving my job meant leaving my, my visa, uh, which also meant my wife no longer had her working visa. Now she was working for an Australian company paying her an Australian bank account. So we thought, well, we can just keep that going and that'll <laughs> help us survive. I'm sure U.S. immigration might listen to this podcast. Um, <laughs> uh, it also meant, you know, me leaving my job, uh, giving up our health insurance, pretty important. Yeah, in which is like very that. important there, yeah. Um, when you leave the type of visa I was on, you have to leave, the, you have to get out of the country in 10 days. Mm-hmm. So I went traveling for a couple of weeks and came back, you know, came, coming back into the country on a new visa. Um, after a couple of weeks, learning scuba dive in Central America, which was pretty awesome. Amazing. <laughs> uh, got back to San Francisco, landed, met by my wife, Kate, and she said, I've got something to tell you. <laughs> and she was pregnant with Bodhi. And so I'd just given, you know, I mean, I'd just given up my salary, all our health insurance, our right to like legally be in the country for mm. more than three months. So kind of from that point onwards, it was just planning to move home yeah yeah um at that you know it, we were we had to go to we luckily san francisco is what they call an amnesty city or a sanctuary city in the u.s which means that they um they provide public service to undocumented immigrants oh, okay so it's a place where you know illegal immigrants uh as they're called uh, can actually access health services and so on um get drivers license on that really worked for us because of course we had we were un- at that point undocumented and no health insurance so we were able to go to some um local facilities in the early part of the pregnancy where wow. we were the only white people in the building, the only people speaking English. It was all in Spanish. Um, so that was a really interesting experience. But, you know, it was it, it was pretty fragile. Yeah. Three months later, I got stuck in Canada. Um, I, I was invited to speak at South by Southwest for the second time that year, but, mm-hmm. sa- but literally the three months visa waiver that I was on expired during South by Southwest. Oh, no. So I went up to Canada to get a, to come back in on a business visa and was um, 
my first uh, application for a visa was, was denied. So I spent oh, no. two and a half weeks stuck in Canada, missed South by Southwest. Meanwhile, Kate's frantically packing up our house, trying to sell our car. I wasn't even sure if I'd get back in. Wow, talk I, about I, everything falling apart at once. Yeah, it just got crazy. Um, I appealed the decision, did get back in, but at that point we just packed up and flew home. Mm. So I never really got that completely kind of, you know, that, 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 that six months I wanted where I just put my head down and went crazy yeah, yeah. on Start Some Good in San Francisco. I, I, I kind of wish I'd had that, but it just, you know, the way things <laughs> worked been out. I mean, no regrets, you know, but yeah. it's the best thing that ever happened to me, but it was a really crazy time. It sounds so insane and probably the last thing you needed when you're launching a new company but at the same time i'm like there's this element of like you had a baby that was so that's like one of the best things in my view that can happen to you in the world so i feel like you're you have this sense of priorities in your life like you know what's important and everything else will fall into place around that is that is that true for you yeah i i'm not you know it's funny i I start things a lot, but I'm not the world's biggest planner. Like I don't, I don't look a long way in the future. I don't really have a, li- a life plan still. Um, I kind of look for opportunities to make a difference. I then am very stubborn once I get started. You know, mm-hmm. like, like you know, you, you said earlier, our, our, you know, the Kickstarter of social change competitor 33 needs only lasted nine months, and we, we're still here. But that's you know, that's just the stubbornness as much as anything. It doesn't, it doesn't. Like certainly in those first nine months, we were no more successful than they were. Right. We just didn't give up and they so did. So do you feel like that's why um, you've... I think a lot of things I really like stick with them and, and you know, like spent eight years building Vibewire and it was, and it never was a breakout success. It just kept moving in the right direction. I kept pushing it and it's, you know, the organization's still around. It's still not a breakout success, but still doing amazing work, um, you know, with, with the community they serve. Um, so, yeah, so I, I don't know. I kind of go with the flow a little bit and, and certainly that's what it felt like with, having Bodhi we hadn't planned you know we'd kind of ha- we had broad plans to have kids together but the time we, we certainly weren't trying mm-hmm. we're trying not to you know <laughs> get pregnant to be honest um at the time and and you know I think in in a perfect world you want to go like okay well we'll wait till we get back to Sydney and then once we have a bit more stability but but that never would have happened you yeah, know like the last five happens. years have been there's such some good has been intense and you know it's it's not like we pay ourselves amazingly and Sydney's very expensive. You know, and I don't know if we ever would have felt, if we'd waited for that perfect moment where we felt kind of secure enough or set up enough, mm. we might still be waiting. Would it have um, come, yeah. And and so I, I'm I'm kind of deeply grateful. I feel like Bodhi arrived at, at the exact right moment, even though we never would have said so at the time. Um, and it did, I think, yeah, it does change your perspective and your, and your priorities coming, you know, in, in coming back to Sydney and being mm. close to family. Mm. And, but, and it does kind of blow my mind as someone who doesn't think a long way into the future it forces you to just begin to wonder more yeah about what things will be like you know like Bodhi's three now and I just like how will he communicate with his friends when he's 18 mm. I, I just can't even begin to wrap my mind around what that might look like in 15 years time when you think of what's happened in our lifetimes yeah. it's I only got, I got, probably I got something we can't imagine 17 years ago approximately you know I yeah <laughs> I, I wouldn't have I, I didn't have a phone until when did I get my first personal phone I guess when I got to university which is kind of yeah it was the same <laughs> yeah, yeah. People, 
Brody will have one soon. <laughs> he already has one. It doesn't work when he wanders around having <laughs> phone calls. With like, yeah. he's a, he has these imaginary friends and his relationship with them is entirely through telephones. <laughs> like he chats with them rather than them actually being wow. present in the room. They're always like somewhere else. He Skypes with them and stuff. <laughs> no way. That's, yeah. that's a sign of the times. If he wants to tell me a story, he'll say, let me show you a video and press a button on his hand and then hold his hand up as if it's a screen for me to watch wow. the thing that happened to his day. I just think there's some like there's obviously kind of like deep seated habits or assumptions around the world mm. that are really different. Yes. Like so different. The assumption I, that things are recorded, you know, and can yeah. be replayed later. Yeah. I wonder what that does to kids. The idea, you know, like we everyone tells you, you know, dance like no one's watching, but instead everyone's gonna be like dance as if you're you're about to be on YouTube or something. <laughs> dance you know? as though it's gonna go viral. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just, I kind of, you know, it's, it's yeah, it's, it, anyway, I, I think I'm way off your, way off no, base no, with your I love question, it, I love it. But, um, but yeah, it is the best thing that, that can happen, certainly for us, it is a really challenging juggle, but I think because startups are so stressful, kids have been great for me because they're my, they're almost my place away from the startup. Mm. Let's finish up on your, you say you don't plan ahead, but you're, something you're excited about with Start Some Good um, in the future. I thought a little bit ahead. Obviously, we have a roadmap. We have some ideas. About <laughs> well, clearly you do first. because yeah. you wouldn't get here without that. Um, but just, just never more than kind of twenty-four months out. So I always think I always think you're just making shit up at that point. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I mean, I'm pretty excited about equity crowdfunding, to be honest. Which is you know kind of in the in the uh, pretty well developed in terms of some of the legislation in Australia. Although I don't think it's coming out in a good place. So I'm I'm excited about the idea of equity crowdfunding, which is. Um, for your listeners, the, the idea that you could actually buy chunks of a company through a platform that starts some good. Okay. Um, so that you could actually invest, you know, real investment um, in companies. And I think social enterprises are currently a, a category of, of startup that is really underserved by existing capital markets for investment. And there are, you know, the, the, there's, a, there's a limit to what you can necessarily raise either through donations or through pre-sales. Sometimes you really do need equity investment and people want to become a real long-term part and, and mm. potentially to earn a return on that as well. But that's um, hard to do at the moment. There's real restrictions over who can inve- who can ask to invest, who's allowed to invest, how right. much money you need to do that. And, and equity crowdfunding legislations would do away with some of those barriers and in some cases replace them with new ones. Um, and so I'm excited by the idea because I think a lot of people would be willing to, to invest in, in exciting social enterprises at, at an early stage, but with show promise uh, with their idea and, and both with their, you know, their, their revenue potential and their impact potential. Um, unfortunately, it looks like our laws are kind of maybe going to most likely to end up at, like the American ones currently. So equity crowdfunding is live in a number of countries around the world right. um, in America. In New Zealand, America has not great laws. New Zealand has very good ones, okay. um, and it really comes down to the cost of compliance. How much information you know have? Ha- so, from the regulatory point of view, are you saying that a, an equity crowdfunding campaign is a little bit like listing on the stock market, and therefore you should you have to you know when you when you do an IP initial public offering for on the stock exchange, there's obviously a huge amount of documentation and information you have to provide, right. and the preparation of that information is enormously expensive. And so the key question with equity crowdfunding is how much, you know, how worried are you about the investors and how much do you desire to protect them mm-hmm. by forcing a huge amount of information and transparency, but what are the costs involved in providing that? And therefore, who do those costs exclude from being able to access yeah. that opportunity? 
So it's estimated in America um, that it, the cost of running an equity crowdfunding campaign could be a hundred thousand dollars right. per raise. Wow! Which obviously excludes most of the market that I'm most excited about, which is yeah. genuinely like early stage, but who might only want to raise fifty thousand dollars or a yeah. hundred thousand dollars total, and obviously can't spend that much to raise that much. Um, if you're going to spend a hundred thousand dollars on the fundraising, you probably want to be raising two million dollars. Yeah. And there's um, already structures in place to support those. Yeah, if you can raise a million dollars, you could probably maybe just go to traditional investors and yeah. so on if you, if you have the right the right pitch for them. Um, so I'm hoping it ends up somewhat more like New Zealand, which is which is much more open. It does accept that that puts a risk on the individual investor who has to assess whether they want to do it or not. But it but it's, but it caps how much any one person can put in. So people right. can't put in. I think more than I don't. It would have to check the exact amount. But you know, 10, 20, 50, 100. I forget what it is. I think it's a proportion of your income. Okay. But um, you can't invest more than X dollars per year in equity crowdfunding. Therefore, worst case scenario, you're never losing more than 10% of your income or whatever it right. might be. That to me is a more sensible system that if you want to protect people, maybe do it around how much they can, they could lose. But you can't, you know, if, if, you, if you work so hard to prevent, you know, from preventing any losses, you're actually going to prevent people from getting in the yeah. market at all. And, you know, wins and losses will both happen. And that's a healthy marketplace. So I'm really excited about what equity crowdfunding could provide. I hope that we'll end up in a with with some useful laws in Australia that will make it easier for particularly social enterprises to get involved in that market. And, and if we do, we start some good. Would love to you know hosts and, and add that kind of capability to our platform or to assist the platform. I could see you guys that. doing that really well. Mm. Yeah, there's no doubt that the world has changed. Like we're talking about how kids are raised these days and what's what's possible. And I think that's that's what's so exciting about what you're doing with Start Some Good is that more and more people get the chance to work on something that they love and bring to life the kind of change that they want to see. Yeah, that's what it's all about. Well, thank you, Tom. It's been so nice talking with you today. It's been wonderful talking with you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this interview, you can find more at wearemakedo.com.au.